1: Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, a spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Katie Balls and I'm joined by James Forsyth and Fraser Nelson. The planning rebels have stood down after the government has agreed a compromise. Now, James, this is one part of the mooted rebellions on the levelling up bill and this was about mandatory housing targets led by Theresa Villiers. And Michael Gove tried to talk them down. Where did it land?
0: So it's landed with essentially it places with a local plan get more discretion, more consideration will be taken over over particular neighbourhoods. So some of these national housing targets will become advisory rather than compulsory. It is a watering down of what the government wanted to achieve, but it is not a total abandonment. I think it is a reminder of how difficult. Anything to do with planning is in the Tory party, which is obviously a problem, given that of all the supply side reforms that you could do to the UK economy, planning is probably one of the ones that would have the biggest impact on on economic growth. And, And I think this shows you how difficult even relatively small changes to the system are.
1: Fraser, there's some speculation that when it comes to the other rebellion, which is the Liz Truss Boris Johnson rebellion on onshore wind farms, there could also be uh, you know giving way to the rebels. Do you think we're starting to see that Richard Sunak doesn't have the authority, or actually are we overreading this? Because ultimately, planning disputes have been there for some time.
2: I think we're seeing one of the most important and understated truths of the Senate government this is a coalition in a way that Boris Johnson's government simply wasn't. Uh, Boris wanted to rule like a sort of dictator almost, coming up with with he or, or in most cases, Dominic Cummings, deciding what happens and everybody told to hop to it. Rishi Sunak recognises that he is somebody who's there without a leadership election, so he's had to put together various Tory tribes who he has to placate. So it's funny that we don't really think of him as a coalition leader, but he is probably more burdened with the the need to balance factions than even David Cameron was during the coalition, eras. So uh, it wouldn't surprise me to make a concession. I think it's ridiculous, if you were. I think the, re, um, the rebels are completely wrong-headed over this. Matt Ridley wrote a fantastic article on the current issue of The Spectator, explaining why um, what onshore wind isn't nearly as profitable as the figures claim it is. In fact, it actually makes gas electricity more expensive because the, f- the plants have to get fired up and down the whole time. A cold rational analysis would I think, take the sting out of this rebellion. But I am struck to see how seldom Tories are capable of
0: strong, rational analysis. Something I would put in brackets is that obviously Boris Johnson had to back down on planning when he tried to reform the system. So in reality, all leaders have to pay attention to the opinion of their parliamentary party. I think mean, what is certainly true... So our, our bleaker burger has just been delivered while we're in this conversation. What is certainly true is that a majority of 80, which is what the Tories had at the beginning of this parliament, is not as big as a majority of 80 used to be back in the old days. MPs these days, I think, are more independent-minded, more inclined to rebel. I think there is a particular issue in the Tory party now, which is more than half of the Tory backbenchers have previously been ministers. And once people have been ministers in the past, they have climbed the greasy pole to some extent, and so are therefore they are more difficult to whip than they, they, than they would have been previously.
2: I suppose I should clarify, James, to say that I think Boris Johnson effectively lost his majority after the Owen Patterson debacle. After that point, he himself became buffeted by Tory MPs. But I don't think he's had to run a coalition. I think the Sinek effectively has, even though I myself am not quite clear who are the Tory tribes that he thinks are the main constituent parts of his party. But this wind farm rebellion really strikes me as bizarre, opportunistic and quite bad manners, actually, from two former prime ministers.
1: James, when it comes to the upper house, and we have the Tory peer, Michelle Moan, is taking a leave of absence. This is all down to the scandal over the COVID contract and the PPE contract. What is the latest of this? And have the government done, done have to distance themselves from Michelle Moen? So the,
0: the, I think mean, the intriguing thing is that this leave of absence was announced just after it was revealed that the government isn't going to try and block Labour's attempt to get all her correspondence with ministers revealed. And I think if you look at the serialisation of Matt Hancock's Diaries. Now, bearing in mind Sam Lee's point about the fact that these, these are diaries written after the event, not during the event, if you see what I mean. I think it is clear that Michelle Moan was quite pushy, to put it mildly, with ministers and repeatedly stated that you know she had no financial interest in things. Statements that are hard to align with the facts as we increasingly understand them.
1: And Fraser, this comes in the context of the House of Lords and Labour's uh, pledged to abolish the House of Lords even if they weren't exactly confirmed it be in the manifesto or the timing. Does this all just help Labour when it comes to winning votes or do you think most voters still don't particularly care about the House of Lords?
2: Oh, I certainly think this will help Labour. I mean, um, there was enough um, controversy where Matt Hancock's public landlords got one of these government contracts. I mean, that was for a far smaller sum than we're talking here. Now, The Guardian, who's done some incredibly... Um, Agenda setting and brilliant investigations into that have, uh, have really shone a spotlight on something that I suspect was happening quite a lot. During the PPE procurement thing Anytime government's in a panic And it has got massive chequebooks to sign There are fortunes to be made by the middlemen We've already had some quite notorious examples Of millions and millions of pounds Made by those who simply arranged the contracts Now this is money which of course Is NHS money It was. It should not be finding its way To, to middlemen And um, But if one of those middlemen might have been a, mem- a Conservative member of the House of Lords It becomes utterly indefensible And that's why the government is in such a difficult position so, of course, I mean, I don't think this necessarily puts the House of Lords in the bad light. What this does is exposes a period of our history where there were, by necessity, you had to short-circuit the normal public sector procurement rules because it was an emergency. But the moment you do that, you open the door for potential corruption to creep in, and I suspect this will not be the last PPE procurement crisis that's coming to light. I actually hope that the Guardian sleuths are able to keep on going until they find more examples of how the um, the taxpayer and the NHS patient was um, pretty badly served by the decisions made at that time in history.
1: And finally, James, donations to the Conservative Party fell between July and September substantially compared to recent years, ultimately to the lowest level since 2020. Is that particularly surprising?
0: I don't mean it's that surprising in that, remember during the summer, both Rishi Sunak and his trust were raising money from people who were... It it is reasonable to assume would otherwise have been donating to the Tory party. I mean, you also, when a party is where the Tories are in the polls, you lose some of those kind of opportunistic donations that you might have got in other times. Well, you lose people who think they're going to buy influence. If you're not going to be in power, then where's the influence, right? Yeah, I, mean, I mean, that is one, one of the challenges for the Tories in terms of, of raising money. I also think there is, there is a difficulty, which is that I think a lot of Tory donors feel either disgruntled about policy or tapped out because they feel that they've been hit up for a series of kind of general elections and then leadership campaigns. And so, I, I, mean, I mean, that is a challenge.
1: Thank you, James. Thank you, Fraser. And thank you for listening.
0: And thank you to Oblique Burgers, who supported this podcast.